Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. And coming up, it's episode five of Meet the Customer. Here's Adam Davidson. Hello. Can you put your computer down so I can talk to you? All right. So here's my question for you, my wife. How am I doing on the customer service component of our marriage? (laughs) Oh, no, I scared the dog. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's what this is about. I mean, a little bit crappy, which is not to say we have a bad marriage. We have an awesome marriage. Customer service wise, meh. It's a little crappy. Sometimes it's hard to like actually get help in a timely manner with like a good attitude. And you, you could make some customer service improvements for sure. Do you think that's a useful way to think about a marriage? Now that you bring it up. Yeah, it probably is. I've never thought of it that way before. I I think you're going to wish that you had never framed it in this particular way. <laughs> I I really think this is going to be with us for the rest of our lives. <laughs> this analogy. <laughs> Marriage, dating, falling in, and sometimes out of love. These relationships have a lot of the same elements as the relationship between buyer and seller. And that's what we're looking at today. That, by the way, was my wife, Jen Banbury. I think there can be bad customer service, but a good marriage, because there's no question that there is good intent there. I mean, honestly, like your customer service, I think the word incompetent is probably better than the word bad in that I think you want it to be good. You're just not good at making it good. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. But there's other aspects like that's in the kind of help. I, I feel like that's in the chores, helping around the house. But I make you laugh. Yes. Oh, my God. If like all customer service involved the level of like really, really solid humor that you bring to this marriage, like that would transform the customer service realm. Yes, you bring very, very solid humor in your not very good customer service. And uh, like adventures, living a good life together feeling close to each other. All of those things. Yeah. And your customer service with our kid is, I would say, like strong. Yeah. You have good kid customer service. I will say that. Very good. These days, of course, it's a bit off to talk about customer service inside a marriage. It's weird to think about love and marriage as anything other than a romantic thing completely divorced from the world of business and customers and sales, to look at marriage as a transaction, a business agreement between two people offering goods and services feels regressive, old-fashioned. And that, of course, is because 
that's exactly what it is. It is old fashioned. Any glance at history tells us that love and romance and feelings, that's all a very, very new idea. Looking for love hasn't always relied so heavily on chemistry. America's very first personal ad, or at least the first of which we have evidence, was in Boston in 1759. There's probably no better way to examine the, at least the recent history of love and marriage than through the lens of personal ads. And yeah, personal ads are a lot older than I realized. That is Francesca Bowman. She wrote the book Matrimony, Inc., a history of personals and other ways of people finding their mates. So that first American personal ad, 1759, Boston, the city is growing fast. It had been little more than a village, not all that much earlier. When the population of Boston is only 2,000 people, you don't need personal ads because you just marry the girl next door or the boy in the field or your mum's friend's kid or whatever. But as the cities grew, got to a population of 10,000, 20,000, you don't know as many people. Often you're working really long hours. You're working really hard. It's hard to meet people. <laughs> um, and that's when you need a new form of matchmaking. So what did the first personal ad ever say? The one that appeared in the Boston Evening Post? It is a wonderfully rare public declaration of what an 18th century gentleman looked for in a wife. That is really my favorite aspect to it. So he was looking for any young lady between the age of 18 and 23 of a middling stature, brown hair, regular features, and with a lively, brisk eye of good morals, possessed of three or four hundred pounds entirely at her own disposal. And really, that's a very long-winded way of him saying he wants a woman who is young, respectable, and rich. Those are the criteria that come up again and again and again in this, this very early period for personal ads. Young, respectable, rich. It's striking how blunt the guy is. He doesn't just want someone with money. He wants someone with a very specific amount of money, between 300 and 400 pounds, and crucially, at her own disposal. That would mean someone who is comfortably middle class, not crazy rich, but definitely able to support herself. Not overly controlled by, you know, the, the, the financial aspect is not controlled by her parents. Now, depending on whether you're feeling cynical or not, uh, we can, you know, speculate on what his intentions were. But the fact was in those days, in personalizing the 18th and 19th century, people always mentioned the financial side. They were very robust and upfront about marriage being an economic transaction as much as anything else. An economic transaction. That, of course, was long the case. Marriage, for much of human history, was a transaction. In 1750s Boston, though, at least through the lens of this ad, it wasn't clear what exactly the woman might get out of this transaction. This is the interesting thing. With all the early personal ads placed by men, they never sell themselves. <laughs> they will say very, very little, often nothing about themselves. It's all about what, what they are looking for. And, and that plays out again and again until for about 100 years, until about the 1850s, when, when the power balance shifts a little bit. By a century later, it became more common to see personal ads taken out by women, like one Francesca found in a Philadelphia paper. This is from March 16, 1852. Husband wanted. An American mechanic, aged from 35 to 40, must be sober, honest, and industrious, 
amiable and generous disposition, domestic habits, and good education. So up until this point, those ads were pretty much all business. They'd appear right next to ads for buggies or horses or whatever. But in the mid-1800s, you start to see hints that people are thinking of a marriage as more than just a financial transaction. They want a pal. They want companionship. And, uh, you know, even if not romantic love, at least companionship, friendship. One of my favorite ads that I found is in a tiny local newspaper um, in Wisconsin in August 1855. It says in big, bold type, husband wanted. I want no brainless dandy or foppish fool, but a practical man who can drive a coach or rock the cradle, hoe the garden or attend the ballroom. I think she speaks for many of us, but, you know, it's, again, a, a fascinating insight into what made the perfect man in Wisconsin in 1855, in her view. No brainless dandy or foppish fool. That is awesome. Something we can all aspire to. Fast forward another hundred years to the 1970s, and, well, you know, these ads start to also be about pleasure. You see a, a lot of these ads, fewer specifically looking for long-term relationships and more looking for maybe a bit of fun of another sort. The heyday of the newspaper personal ad in the 1980s is where people fully see their relationships as not about money or formal business dealings, but as a source mainly of pleasure and emotional satisfaction. And that's continued to today with dating apps. Jess Carboneau is no amateur when it comes to finding someone to date. I started dating in earnest online at the age of 23 and had, I went on 300 dates. This was not a casual thing for Jess. She took dating through the modern form of personal ads very seriously. She went on five to seven dates each and every week. I tried to keep it very isolated to 30-minute period. So I would schedule dates back-to-back. I would do a 6 o'clock date, a 7 o'clock date, and an 8 o'clock date. I would go and I would set up the dates were in Brentwood at the time. It was a restaurant called Tavern and a restaurant across the street called Toscana. And I would cross the street back and forth. And I would go 6 o'clock to Tavern, 7 o'clock to Toscana, and 8 o'clock to Tavern again. Wow. Did the maitre d's or wait staff like get to know you? Oh, they all knew me. Yeah, no, people knew me. I was, I've spent a lot of time there. I lived a couple blocks away and I always ordered club soda unless I was very interested in somebody. I carried cash so as to be able to extricate myself from the date. And I had a whole protocol. I would go to the bathroom and then I would say, shall we, after I was ready to leave when I returned to the table and the date was over. After 30 minutes, she says she'd make the big choice. Does this person deserve another date or not? If the answer was yes, then Jess would fill out a bunch of details about the person, things that matter to her, into an actual spreadsheet she kept handy. Their name, their occupation, what app I matched with them on, what I thought about them in terms of their interpersonal style, how quickly I disliked them or liked them. Those people I did not like, obviously. These dates weren't with just anyone. He had to be educated, Jewish, and attractive to me. And if he met those criteria, I would go out and spend, would be willing to spend 30 minutes with the person and then see how it went. Most people never got to a second date. But the ones who did, they got a longer dinner, maybe with drinks. 
Oh, I should mention something about Jess. Jess Carboneau was not just a pro at the dating process. She literally has a PhD in dating. Well, specifically, she has a doctorate in sociology from UCLA. Her thesis was about dating in the 21st century, which means online dating, of course. She then became staff sociologist at Tinder and at Bumble. She knows how dating works today. Now, when I was getting ready to talk to Jess, I had this idea in my mind, the idea that a dating app like Tinder or Bumble is great at something called matching. The idea of matching is huge these days, more in business, really, than relationships. On earlier episodes, we talked about how business used to work before the Industrial Revolution. Commerce was mostly local. You bought stuff from the one neighbor in town who sold that stuff. Matching a buyer and seller was not that big a deal, because wherever you were, there was a fairly limited set of options. Then came the 20th century, industrialization, mass production, mass consumption. People everywhere had a lot more products they could buy, and companies had access to a ton more customers. This was all done at massive scale. Snickers or Ford or whatever didn't need to know a lot about you individually. They came to think of their customers in these broad demographic buckets. Men and women, over 25, under 25, that kind of thing. And customers mostly bought the things that everyone else they knew bought. But now we live in this world of niche products and niche consumers. Walk down an aisle at any supermarket or look in your best friend's pantry, and you'll see that there is a proliferation of products, and many of them serve a very specific, tiny market. It means we, the consumers, are no longer just broad demographic groups. We are ourselves, each of us, in our full weirdness. So now you don't just choose the bread everyone else chooses or the bread brand that your parents used. You might choose from a huge range of breads, depending on your mood and the time of year. Same with chocolate and shirts and cars and vacations and all the stuff we buy. So when you have all these different options, the options are changing all the time. How do you find the one that works for you? That's the matching problem. The buyers and the sellers have a much harder time finding each other. It's actually a huge, huge problem in business today. I thought that Tinder and Bumble and all the high-tech AI-enabled dating apps would solve this problem. They'd give you your special person. But that's not how it works. They don't. They do something else. They help foster the conditions under which you can do the hard work of matching. For a dating app to be successful, they have to be able to convince the population that you're interested in that they are going to have multiple prospects who they can theoretically sift through and evaluate in order to be able to find a romantic partner. I think the fundamental move in online dating is to differentiate yourself from everybody else who meets those man-seeking-woman 25 to 30 criterion. Most people have something about them that makes them unique that would tell them that they are not like everybody else within a 10-block radius of them. And I think that people don't do that. They talk about, I watch Netflix, I like brunch, and I love my dog. Well, most people love Netflix, most people like brunch, and most people who have dogs love their dogs. That does not make you distinguishable from everyone else. What would make you distinguishable from everybody else 
else would be somebody who said, you know, I grew up and English is my third language. I grew up in another country. English is my third language. You know, I've worked in three different careers. This is my, my fourth career and I'm loving it and I see it for the future. And like, these would all be things that are interesting and going to be revealing about many characteristics about somebody. Look, I like Netflix. I love my dog. Hi, Feather. And sure, I, I like brunch. I don't do it that often. I'm pretty sure my wife, Jen, feels the same way. In fact, we often walk our dog together or watch Netflix together. But when I think of our match, I think of our sense of humor, which has crazy compatibility with each other and not with all that many other people. Our sense of adventure. I mean, we fell in love in Baghdad. And there's a whole bunch of other things about ourselves that others might just not be into. In other words, it's it's not the things we share with everybody that makes us a good couple. It's the weird stuff that we share with very few people that works. And that brings us to a paradox, a paradox of dating apps, a paradox of matching in an age of intimacy at scale. The best way to use the dating app is to see a lot of people who might be right, but you also want to do this other thing that might limit the number of people who will want to see you. You want to be very specific about yourself. What makes you interesting, weird, unusual? You actually want to communicate things that might prevent others from swiping left. Or is it right? I've been married so long, I never got to use Tinder or any of those things. So whichever is the one that makes them want to see you. It's both. It's both. It's both that you are going to distinguish yourself by not being Netflix brunch and dog, but also you are going to be providing information that would be interesting to somebody. So if somebody has a a fear of commitment and you are somebody who's, you know, been with commitment phobes, learning that somebody is on their fourth job in the past three years might be a little off-putting to you or might tell you the person is not quite so stable. For somebody else who likes adventure um, and who believes in exploring and following your path, that may be something that's really attractive because you want someone who also might explore and support your ability to make different moves and pivot from thing to thing. So that's something that could be valuable in both selection and elimination. I find all this a great way to think about matching in today's economy. Now, saying the things that make you specifically you or your products specifically your products, that's just the beginning. When you're selling something really specific that some customers will feel passionately attracted to and others will hate, it's not a quick thing. You need them to engage, to sample, to explore your offering. My wife and I share a love of chocolate. Now, everyone loves chocolate, right? We subscribe to this service that sends us a box filled with really nice artisanal chocolate every month. We taste it all. Some we hate, although it's pretty rare for us to hate anything. I mean, it is chocolate after all. But some we like a little and some we like a lot and some blows us away and we order more of it. I've been thinking about how we choose the products we buy. It's common these days to talk about branding. The branding equivalent of dating would be, I guess, just dating whoever is superficially attractive in a way that everyone would agree, or going with whoever makes the most money. The deep matching version would be taking on the personal responsibility of learning what you truly desire, you, what you want, not what your best friend thinks you should have or your nosy cousin. What do you like in other people? What would make you happy? And then practicing, looking for it in other people. 
And then when you find someone who seems to have those things, figure that out and give them a chance. By the way, Jess's personal story has a very happy ending. She went on all those dates, hundreds of dates, and then... I remember a lot about having met Joel. Joel and I had a very nice first date. I was very interested in Joel. He fit all of my demographic criteria. I thought he was very attractive. He seemed funny. He seemed interesting. We went to a bar in Santa Monica. We were there for four hours. We met up for dinner again that night. And then we spent the whole weekend together. We spent the next weekend together. We moved in together basically within, you know, meeting each other for a month and officially moved in together after four months. We were then together for about a year and like a half. Then we broke up for a year, got back together and got married. So a lot happened in between. That was Adam Davidson talking customers and love. Next week, on our final episode of our mini-series, Meet the Customer, we follow Jane Marie on her visit to Levi's, a brand that has been listening to the customer for over 150 years. Meet the Customer is brought to you by Salesforce Customer 360. Salesforce unites all of your teams, marketing, sales, service, commerce, and IT around a single shared view of your customer on one integrated platform. And the result? Your employees have all the information they need to do their best work and wow your customers at every opportunity. So to learn more about what Salesforce Customer 360 can do for your business, visit salesforce.com slash 360. Meet the Customer is a production of Salesforce Studios, hosted by Adam Davidson and Jane Marie, produced by Little Everywhere, additional production from Rachel Levin and Courtney Eltinge of Salesforce Studios. I'm Michael Revo. Thanks for listening.